This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, you know, before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the rise of outlaw country music and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision in her tiny living room, far from Nashville's music row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Hey, I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the St. Jude kids. St. Jude's doing incredible work fighting childhood cancer. And because of donations, like the ones that you get, families never receive a bill ever from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, food, none of that. Help St. Jude stop childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope. Get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. It's going to look great on you. So join all the doctors, researchers, and me in this fight. All right, text the word Bobby. It's only six numbers to 785-833. Again, text the word Bobby to just these six numbers, 785-833. Hey, guys, welcome to the BobbyCast Top 8 Interviews of the Year. This is part one of two, so playing you some highlights. We're looking back at some of the best moments in this podcast, which is extremely music-centric, obviously. All the best of 2020. I mean, we've had to adjust, too. It's been a crazy year for everyone, and even us doing this podcast. I mean, we started out the first 140 episodes or so, maybe more, doing long interviews at the house. Someone would come over, a songwriter, an artist, a producer, someone in management, and we would just sit, sit for an hour. But then Corona shut that down. We've slowly got back into doing that, and we'll continue to do it if we can do it safely. So... You know, we'll hear from Tracy Lawrence in this podcast, you know, 90s country superstar, Chris Kirkpatrick of NSYNC, Lionel Richie, Gary Lavox, who I think Gary was the first. We had back in afterward, yeah. And I think that was just because he was over at my house anyway. Yeah. he Because <laughs> we didn't, we were scared to schedule anything with anyone. Yeah. We didn't know if we wanted to, we didn't know if they wanted to. And Gary Lavox was over at, the, over at my house. And he was like, yeah, we're doing a little something. And I was like, you want to talk about it? He was like, what do you mean? I said, I have a studio right, you know, right across the, the little walkway. And he's like, yeah, sure. So we just came over here, and that was our first one. It kind of made us a little more comfortable yeah. with doing this you know, at a split distance. So uh, be sure to subscribe if you can. We're on vacation right now, obviously. Uh, so leave us that, that five-star rating if you can. That goes a long way. We're going to kick it off. Now, these won't be extremely long, but I think it's kind of a best up. We'll kick it off at number eight with Tracy Lawrence. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, Tracy. Good morning, brother. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Can't complain, man. You know, I guess a couple weeks ago, and I don't know if you run your own Twitter account or not, but I was, and kind of what inspired me to reach out to you again, because I've seen you pretty recently, but um, I was listening to Paint Me at Birmingham, and there's that key change, right, in that double chorus. And I was like, man, this thing still hits hard. Like when you go up a key, I'm just like, holy crap. 
So I, I was thinking about that song, and I was like, yeah, I hadn't talked to Tracy in a while. I kind of wanted to catch up a little bit. So first of all, I appreciate you coming on. Second of all, when I started to look up Pay Me a Birmingham, I realized it peaked at number four. It wasn't even a number one song. No, it wasn't. It was, and probably, you know, other than Time Marches On, Birmingham's probably the biggest impact record that I had. And it was, I mean, it, it, it barely got top five, man. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it says it peaked at four in this chart. But why is that? Like, what? What at that point kept it from hitting one? Was it were, were radio people going ah bad research or what? What were they saying? I, you know, uh, I was on DreamWorks at the time, and DreamWorks had a lot of momentum. It was a big record. I, I don't know if they just had fought it as long as they wanted to fight it and let it go. I mean, I, I don't know. That was you know that was Scott Borchetta's deal back at the time, but I I, I, I thought it. Even though it didn't go number one, that song has been just as impactful, if not bigger, than most of the number one records that I've had over the years. I mean, I close the show with it every night, and it brings the house down. Yeah, I mean, it brings the house down when I'm streaming it. I mean, and that's just my house. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, uh, well, I, I a couple things I want to talk to you about for a second. You know, we're we're going through this, you know, renaissance again from back when I was a kid in the '90s and a teenager, and you know when. You know, you had a ton of your early success. Why in the world do you think we're looking back at the 90s now as, like, the beloved decade for country music? I think it was just such a great—it it was really a magical time for country music, man. There was the that young country energy that had swept the country. You know, in 89, it all started in 89 with Garth Brooks and Clint Black. And and uh, Travis Tritt and Alan Jackson and Mark Chestnut, that was the beginning of it. And that explosion drove so many of us to come to Nashville. I mean, because of the, by the time we got into the early 90s, it was, it was traditional country with an edge to it. And I really think that we're going to look back on the 90s as kind of like what classic rock is to the country these days. It's going to be that music that sustains for a long, long time. There was just something really special about it. You know, with you, and I'm not sure if you were down at SAU or, you know, whenever, but right before you decided to move to Nashville, but what was the thing that kind of pushed you over the edge where it's like, all right, crap, I got to go. Like, I can't do it if I don't. I had uh, I had left SAU. I did two and a half years at SAU, and I'd, I'd gone back into the workforce for a little bit. I wound up moving to Louisiana, and I was um, I was playing in a circuit band and doing just odd jobs down there. I was living in Ruston, Louisiana at the time, and I had re-enrolled in, in uh, Ruston in Louisiana Tech there at Ruston, and I was supposed to start classes in the fall. I got my Pell Grant approved, and all that stuff was going on. I was going to go back and finish my degree. And all that music from 89 came out, and I was, I was sitting there thinking, you know, if, if I wind up going back to college, I'm never going to go to Nashville. If I'm going to do it, I need to do it now. And I uh, I canceled the gigs, played the last weekend with the band, packed my car up, and came to Tennessee. Okay, so did you have one car? Did you have a trailer? Like, kind of let me see <laughs> let me see what you Dude, moved I here. Piece of crap, I had a piece of crap uh, Toyota Corolla with about 250,000 miles on it. And and the car is still sitting in my pasture right now. The kids have <laughs> shot it full of bullet holes. It's still out there in the pasture. So I had uh, I played my last gig in Spring Hill, Louisiana, at Bill's New Country, and they took a collection up at the door to help me get to Nashville. I think I had seven hundred dollars in my pocket in a beat up old car, and that is all I had except what I could pack in that car. So what kind of place do you move into? What kind of place did you move into when you got here? 
You know, uh, there was a guy from back home, and I called his mom on the way up here. Now, I'd never been to Nashville before, really didn't know anybody. And he let me stay on the couch for a couple of weeks. I wound up getting a job. I got on uh, work with a construction company over in Portland, Tennessee. And I was uh, working on a big warehouse that they were building, hanging metal siding on it. I got my feet on the ground. Every night I would go out and meet the road musicians and the songwriters and everything at all the, the, the local water and holes downtown. And I wound up getting room and board with a drummer named Terry Buttram that was actually from Texarkana and wound up staying with him. He, he put my, my first band together when I got my record deal. Things happened really fast, though, because I got to town in September of 1990. By December, I was on a show called Live at Libby's over in Daysville, Kentucky. That was an Opry-style show that broadcast back into Nashville on one of the Kentucky radio stations every Saturday night. Some executives from Atlantic Records had come to that show in December to see somebody else, and they liked me better. I did a showcase in January at the Bluebird Cafe, which is where I met Rip Blackburn. They agreed to sign me. In May of 91, I cut sticks and stones and had three number one records and a top five off of it. Insane. Insane. Here's Sticks and Stones. Let me play a little bit of Sticks and Stones. I know every word of this song. When you were in school, Tracy, were you the music guy? Were you the guy that always had a guitar beating around, or did your friends even know oh, that yeah. you were? Oh, yeah. I was the guy that John Belushi would have taken it out of my hands and bashed it against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> When you were in yeah, high school. I went to church camp, man. I, I had a 12-string guitar, dude. Oh, yeah, I did come by y'all, all that stuff. So at church, because, listen, we, there was always a church camp, and I went to uh, Spring Lake Church Camp every year, and there was always one cool kid that could play guitar. And for, for me, whenever I was a kid, it was mostly uh, Oasis, Wonderwall. They could always play that. They could play a couple Garth songs, and that was about it. But it, were you that kid? You know, I was uh, – I, I, I could play quite a bit, uh, uh, most of my stuff was like real traditional country. I, I, I was really big time into George Strait and Merle Haggard. Those were my two guys. Of course, uh, you had guys like uh, Randy Travis that came out in the early 80s, so I would play on the other hand and, and 1982 and that kind of stuff. So there was a whole lot of music from that era that were more of the baritone singers that I just absolutely fell in love with. And most of it was pretty straightforward stuff. I mean, we didn't get really into intricate chord changes and stuff till you got into more of the pop country. So most of it was pretty straightforward. You know, three or four chords, it was pretty easy. In a few minutes, I'm going to ask you about, you know, Made in America, your, your latest record, and you know, doing your own record label, and because that's always so interesting to me. But I want to hit, hit a couple songs real quick because uh, "Can't Break It to My Heart" was me my teenage anthem. Like I hear this song, you know how you hear a song, and for me, it puts me back in Central Arkansas, 13 years old, listening to Kiss in '96, hearing this song right here. Did you hear songs still in your life that put you back in those spots? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, a lot, especially a lot, a lot of the stuff from the early '80s. You know, uh, because that was such a developmental time for me. You know, from the time I was, you know, a preteen, early teen, 12, 13, 14 years old, all that music had such a big impact on me uh, because I was really, it, it was it was forming part of my identity because it was becoming a big part of who I was because everything to me revolved around music. You know, from, from going to junior high prom to 
to, you know, you know, and not even just country stuff. The, the way, uh, Purple Rain was like our theme song for the prom. I graduated in 86, so all that music that came through, I hear Van Halen songs, and they remind me of my buddy. We, my running buddy had a 69 Chevelle, and we, I mean, we listened to a lot of Van Halen during the summer. So all, all those songs, man, they bring back those great memories. You know, at this point in my career, because I just turned 40, so I now I have people going, hey, I used to listen to you when I was like eight years old, and I'm like, holy crap, I'm... I'm I'm getting a little older. It's got to be wild, too, when you're out and there's like a, you know, a 25-year-old that's like, man, I, Tracy Lawrence, I was listening to you when I was like four. That's got to be crazy, right? <laughs> uh, my favorite's when, man, my grandmother loves you. <laughs> 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 but you know what? I, I, I've seen the highs and lows of the business, and, and I really have learned to take it all in stride, man, just, just to kind of still be somewhat relevant and, and have a fan base out there that allows me to work. I, I'm, I'm so appreciative of it. I don't think I understood – you know, you, you get inside the bubble when your career takes off and you're focused on all that and you got all the people around you and you got your bubble and all that. You know, you lose perspective of just how special it is because it's something that very few people get to do. They don't get to take that journey. They don't get to feel the ride and the, the emotions of feeling a, a record go up the chart and seeing the impact that it has on the public and the way that it changes the crowd. And, you know, it's just it's, it's like getting on top of a wave is the only way to describe it. It's like riding, riding the top of a wave on a surfboard, you know, and and the ultimate goal is to try to sustain that ride as long as you can, you know. What wave was the biggest and hardest? Like you put out, was it Time Marches On? Was it Texas Tornado where you put it out and it's like, holy crap, hold on, because here we go. Man, there were several of them. I mean, uh, that initial first wave when Sticks and Stones took off, man, it was life-changing for me. Uh, and, and I remember hearing, hearing six of stones in the car radio for the first time and just the chills that it gave me, I literally had to pull over the side of the road and sit there and freaking cry, you know, but then, then you come back with, with alibis. Alibis was a massive, massive hit back in 93. And then, I mean, so they, they, there's just something powerful about the way that those records impacted back then. And I don't, I don't, I guess, I guess songs still impact that way for, for artists nowadays. But back then it was, you could feel the ground shake underneath your feet. And as a, as a record would move up the charts, you know, it, it had a, a feel to it when it hit top 40. And then by the time it got top 20 and top 10, it got more intense. Just the way the fans would sing the song back to you. By the time a record got top five into number Number one, it was you could feel the ground move underneath your feet. There was no, there's no other way to describe it. You know, when you put out the album last year, Made in America, uh, you know, it's your your latest record. And I'm I'm curious as because you have such a distinct sound that people know you for. Like, how do you walk that fine line of because we all grow as people, as artists. You know, we don't want to be the same person we were 20 years ago. But how do you grow but still stay the same when you're making new music? But people know you from again, sticks and stones and alibis and if the good die young. This album was really different in a lot of ways because I'd never written as much for a record. This album, I wrote like eight of the 12 tracks on it. Three of the other tracks came from songwriters in my publishing company, stuff that I'd known for a while. So they basically all but one song came out of my camp. The one song that didn't is a Stapleton Sean Camp song called Giving Mama Reasons to Pray. And, and I, you know, I know this sounds crazy, but I really always lacked self-confidence in my own songwriting. I'd, I'd had it, Can't Break It was one that I wrote, Front Porch was one that I wrote, Stars Over Texas I wrote, but 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 I'd always tried to beat my own songs out with things I found from other publishing companies. As I was looking for material for this record, I just couldn't find what I was looking for, and I wound up really just knuckling down and writing this record, and I'd never forced myself to do that before. And I think uh, 
I think it finally shined through. I think I, I cut a record that I'm really proud of from top to bottom, more so than, than I have been any of them in the last several years. And, and it's, I, I just felt more of a connection to it, and I felt like I delivered it better than I had anything else in a long time. Yeah, you guys check out Made in America. Your own record label, what kind of responsibility is that now? You know, it's not too bad. It's it's basically just an imprint. We've got a distribution company with the Orchard, and they take care of so much of the other stuff. So basically, I'm I'm really hands on during the recording process. You know, uh, you know the the way we market things through social media and with with secondary radio and and uh, uh, with streaming platforms is really different nowadays. So, you know, I'm involved in what's going on, but I got a great management company that takes care of most of it. So it's it's. It's nothing like when we were on a major and we were out doing radio tours and working radio all the time. It's it's a whole different thing. It's much more laid back these days. All right. Well, let me end with this question. If you look back at all your trophies or plaques or uh, different souvenirs, like what is it that you have that you look at and go, man, I look at that. It reminds me of something awesome and it means the most to me. Oh, wow. You know, I, I, I know this is going to sound strange to a lot of people. Um, when my wife and I started our family, my wife and I have been together 22 years. We have a daughter that's a sophomore in college, one that's a senior this year. And when we started our family, we made the conscious decision that they, we didn't want them to try to keep up with what I had accomplished and the things that I'd done in my life. There are no platinum records on my walls, no gold records. There are no trophy mantles, no trophy cases. I've got a collection of NFL football helmets signed by all these different people, sports memorabilia and stuff. But as far as the trophies and things from me, they're they're not displayed in my home. Nice. Who's your favorite? What's your team? Who's your NFL team? You know, uh, I grew up a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Uh, I, I still have a lot of friends in Dallas. I'm very connected to that program. Uh, but, you know, we're here in Tennessee. We've got to support our Titans. Uh, and I, I'm anxious for football to start back this year. I hope we're going to have – Somewhat of some normalcy with some football coming back. You know, we just have to wait and see. It's been a crazy year, man. Yeah, I agree. Hey, Tracy, you know I love you. Uh, follow at the real Tracy Lawrence. Just such a big fan of your music, and then even as a person now, you just you continue to grow and do things for the community and make music, and you know I admire that. So thank you for your time, and thanks for just uh, being around town, man. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you, man. Have right, a good is. day. See you, Tracy. Take care. Bye bye. We're gonna go to number seven now. I loved NSYNC. I'm not afraid to admit it. Thought they were the best boy band of all time, actually. And when Chris Kirkpatrick, he came and co-hosted the radio show. Yeah. Was that before or after this podcast? He came in to the radio show before. Okay. So I'd known him just from the radio show that one day. Yeah. All right, here is Chris Kirkpatrick of NSYNC at number seven. You didn't have Facebook when NSYNC was blowing mm-hmm. up. None of it. It wasn't a thing yet. Right. Would you have people like reaching out to you? Because you said high school reunion. Uh-huh. And I go through this a little different now, but we're, how did people get a hold of you and be like, hey, remember me? We were best friends back in the day. Um, I mean, we had a website. And, uh, you know, it was funny back then, with, even just with the website of how we were trying to be progressive with it. And we had this whole idea about this, like, 3D market and, you know, everything where it was all inclusive and, you know, not knowing that cell phones would be what they are. But... Um, I've, there's a lot of ways that happened. I actually, you know, I'm still in touch with some friends, you know, from way back in the day that I saw their sign at Hershey in the audience saying, Hey, Chris, it's uh, these people. And I had security guy go out and get them. 
And, um, you know, a lot of, some of my, I've stayed in contact with a lot of, you know, most of my high school friends, you know, at least a couple of them, and they know how to get in touch with a couple of them, or they'd say, hey, so-and-so wants to know if, if they can come down. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of cool because I think a lot of my high school friends that are still my friends now were my friends in high school. You know, we were all, I wasn't, I wasn't the, you know, I, I wasn't the popular kid. I wasn't, I said like the least popular, but it was just kind of like, I was just like everybody's little brother. Like I was little. That's another thing I had not like going in for physical me. stature. Yeah, physical stature. I was five foot, a hundred pounds my junior year of high school. Wow. So I grew about nine, ten inches after my junior year of high school, and I went to my five year reunion before NSYNC blew up, and there were guys coming up to me going, "Hey, uh, who are you here with?" And I'm like, "There were seventy kids in our class. I know you, Tim. Remember, <laughs> it's Chris Kirkpatrick." They're like, "Oh, yeah, wow." You're bigger. You've changed. When you say before Instinct blew up, did people feel like that that was, did anybody go, man, you guys really hit a hard quick and you're going, if you had any idea what yeah. we've been doing, the you would work. have. The like, work. Because for me, people will go, boy, in the last year, you've last couple of years, you've really, and I'm like, man, yeah. I, I guess I'm a, a 15-year overnight success right. because you only see like when the fruition comes. Well, I, I think the difference is, um, I think blowing up isn't the right way to talk about it because it was blow it was almost blowing up overnight it was the overnight success story that's you know that to me is different that to me is you know that you just you know it's like hey hi justin my name's chris nice to oh we're famous you know it's like that was there was a lot of work into that there was a lot we did there was you know obviously a lot of but when we released the disney special in the states that was the first time any kid in the united states we were all getting on an airplane and some girl goes Hey, that's those guys on the Disney show. Can I have an autograph? And we all like stopped in the jetway and went running back out because we're like, wait, you're American. You know us? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I saw you on the Disney special. And it was so weird because that girl was the first one. And maybe, you know, the next day it just became all over. Like everybody would start stopping us. And it just became because then that Disney special was, you know, this, it, started this whole trend and that's what kids were watching that was the that was the blippy that was the you know whatever uh um barney or whatever you know that disney special was what all kids focused on so when kids get on to something i mean it's crazy how they run with it and and you know they want to be an adult and so they they take it and make it in and that's what happened to us i mean they just took us as their band and blew us up you had been performing and had music released overseas though right oh yeah so when they go hey you let's do a quick infancy story you mm -hmm. actually were the guy that was first when when NSYNC started to come together right as far I put as the, the band scene, together right yeah. so you're the guy right so you go all right we're gonna find and in your mind were you putting together a band a boy band a singing group what was the idea so when I when I first started music um I, I fell into music, you know, it was like, I was, I always wanted to do something. I wanted to be a football player. I wanted to do all these other things, but I kept falling into music. Um, I landed uh, the lead role of Oliver Twist in our high school production when I was in sixth grade. Could you sing at that point in your mind? Like, were you a good singer? Uh, I still don't think I'm a good singer. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, I, I could stay on key and, you know, it's, and, and again, you know, talk about five foot, a hundred pounds, my junior year, obviously my voice didn't change until, you know, probably about two weeks ago, but you know, it was, uh, there was a lot of, um, I, I enjoyed music. I, I, 
always kept falling into it. Um, I moved to Orlando and started college. And so I, that's why I was one of the older ones in the band. Like I was already, in, I graduated. Howie, Howie from the Backstreet Boys and I were in college together. And um, I was just there and I was, you know, taking random classes just so I could say I went to college and, you know, learn a, a trade or something. And there was a, there was an ad for a choir. And I, I did, went to the ad and I got a scholarship. And the next thing you know, I got another scholarship. And then I went to a, a prestigious school, Rollins, with a scholarship and music. And it just kept following me. But the whole time I was doing um, acoustic guitars with a buddy of mine, like we'd play at coffee shops or whatever it was. And then when I was in high school, we did these quartets and I loved acapella. I loved harmonies. So I put together a quartet and at all these coffee shops and things we were doing, me playing the guitar with my buddy Steve was like, okay, yeah, cool. Driving and crying, cool. Indigo girls, all right, whatever. But then when we go out and do this acapella stuff, like everybody just went nuts. I mean, girls were just like, oh my God, this is the best ever. And I'm like, wow, like the, there's something to this. So I was trying to do the acapella thing. And I even remember when Howie and Charlie came to me with their pictures with the Backstreet Boys, I was like, how's that going to work? You guys are like singing to tapes. You know, I'm like, we're like Where's up Charlie, here. by the way. Uh, oh, so Char- <laughs> Charlie's a great story. Charlie Edwards he's w- was one of my really close friends. He's a great guy. He, uh, he's how I got connected with all of it, all of Lou Pearlman and all that. So I had a quartet at school. Charlie was in my quartet. Howie was in my class. Howie came into school looking for kids for the Backstreet Boys, and he went to Charlie. So him and Charlie joined the Backstreet Boys. Um, Charlie had a falling out, I guess, with a producer. So Charlie came to me and called me and said, hey, you know, I want to be involved, but could we bring your group that you have to this guy, Lou Perlman? And I was like, yeah, sure. So then, you know, it was probably about a year. We were just grinding, and, and I had like three jobs and full-time school, and it was like, I'd be late for some rehearsals and they were just like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. And he quit. And I said, but I had the introduction with Lou. And that's when, you know, Lou was like, I need you to get the band. Like I want another band. I've got Backstreet. I want another band, which sucks for them. Like, and you know, in hindsight, it really sucks for them because here was this guy who they looked at as their, their brother, their Papa Lou. And he's out there as a business guy going, and he even said it, he'd say it to us all the time. You know, I've got uh, Burger King. I want McDonald's. You know, they they get along, they coexist. And, you know, if he would have been an honest guy and just done that, you know, who knows where he'd be. But this Charlie guy, just to go back for one second. Yeah. You're telling me that he yes. was in both yes. Backstreet and Insane. Yes. And then what, yes. what is he alive still? Uh, yeah. And what's he doing? I'm pretty sure. I haven't talked to him in. Then he years. joined O Town. I, yeah, I used to run into him a lot. Um, that's cr- that's but, crazy. Yeah. But and he actually left my band to go teach golf in uh, a club med, and I was begging him. I'm like, dude, you know, I'm holding on to strings here. Like I would, I mean, again, I had so many jobs and I had, you know, full time school, and I was like still trying to arrange music and teach people parts and put together um, rehearsals and all this stuff. And when he quit, I was just, I mean, I remember, you know, just being in the lowest, one of the lowest places in my life, laying there thinking that I had a potential with this Lou Perlman guy. And the guys in my band would keep quit, you know, dropping out or quitting. So who was the first guy of 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 the band now? The group that you were like, all right, come do it. Justin. And they said yes. It really? Justin. And yeah. and you met him was this Mickey Mouse Club? No. Nope. Post I, So so the story the real story is 
I was, I was making cold calls. I was just calling people. I'm like, you know, I need to find, you know, parts. I need to find guys that sing. I need to do whatever. So I don't remember. I think I went through the paper or something like that. And I called, I think I called agents. I called like 19 agents. I'm like, listen, I'm putting together this group. Okay. Thank you so much. This is my number. This is my address. Click. You know, I did 19 agents. One person got back to me and I went over. I remember it like it was yesterday, Studio Plaza in Orlando and pulled up in my little Nissan Center or whatever I was driving. And he gave me this manila envelope and I went out and, you know, put it, popped in this cassette tape into my player and heard this voice. I'm like, oh my God, like, this is unbelievable. This is better than anybody that's been in my band yet. And I pulled up the headshot and I'm like, Justin Timberlake, is he an Indian? Like, I didn't, you know, I didn't get, I didn't know if that was a shtick or what, what was going on. And, uh, called his mom and that was a tough call because they were back in Memphis and I was like, hey, uh, I'm this 24, 23-year-old guy, and I want to put your 14-year-old son in a band with me. And, you know, and, and they had this thing where it was like they went down for Mickey Mouse Club, and they said, well, if we go, to, go there for Mickey Mouse Club and we don't get it, you at least go, we'll go to Disney. So, you know, they kind of said it again. They also suggested, they said, well, he's been working with JC. So JC came down, and I actually met JC first. Because Lou went and picked JC up at the airport and they came to my work and, and I met JC and then Justin came and the three of us are out one night and we ran into Joey randomly and I knew Joey. Joey's the only one of them that I knew prior because we worked at Universal Studios together. And uh, I knew Joey and we're like, dude, you know, we're looking for a band. You know, can you do it? And he's like, yep, I'm in. Because he was in this group in high school called The Big Guys with the Luis Fonzi. Oh yeah, really? Yeah, which was in, and they were like this. They were like this high school band. It's so weird to see Fonzie, you know, doing so much now. And his brother uh, John is amazing too, because his brother John was in my group. But that's I'll just make this story really long. But um, but yeah, so then Joey got in the band, and uh, he brought in this kid Jason, and that's how we got the name because uh, Justin's mom was looking at all our names, and Justin, Chris, Joey, Jason, and JC. The last letter all spells in sync. And that's how we got our name. And then um, the night we were signing the deal, Jason quit, left, and it took us a year to find Lance. The night you were signing? Yeah, we ended up signing the next day, just the four of us. But we, we needed a base. Like, we knew we needed a base. You had, you know, Joey was the lowest singer. And Joey's a good baritone, but he's no bass. And we had no low end. And I remember when Lance came over to the house and we're like, uh, his vocal, our vocal coach was like, we think we like him. And he was in there, and Justin and I were listening in the door, just like high-fiving, because Lance just kept going lower and lower and lower. And I was like, man, this is unbelievable. So when you guys get together, and when Lance finally comes in, had you decided how you wanted to present yourselves or you were going to? Or were you still going, we're a pure vocal group? Because when did the rest come in? The dancing, the, the, the stage, we'll call it stagemanship? I think, I think that was slowly you know, weeded into what we were doing. I mean, I think at some point we had to realize that we couldn't just be an acapella group doing what we did. You know, we wanted up-tempo songs and acapella up-tempo, you can't really dance to. It's, it's more of, you know, listening. But, um, you know, then we just kind of, we started, uh, Justin and JC had been writing some tracks and uh, our, our vocal coach, uh, who was actually really big in Nashville, like I'm running to people all the time now that, that knew her, Robin Wiley, um, she was real intricate in helping us with our sound because she knew right away, like we were like, oh, well, Chris will sing the high stuff and Lance will sing the low stuff. And, 
Joey will sing the middle stuff and Justin and JC will do the leads, but she really kind of, you know, formed our sound and, and her arrangements and, and things she wrote. One of my favorite songs we ever did to this day was a song called I Thought She Knew. And it was, I mean, it was all her arrangement and it was just so intricate and so unbelievable. And it was so fun to do because here I've got four other guys that are talented enough to know parts. And that's, that's a big thing. Like there's so many times you'll start singing something, everybody jumps on whatever you're singing, you know. But to sing your own part, even when it's rubbing or doing whatever, it's like it's it was it was really cool. We used to find anywhere we could sing and just sing together. And then who goes? We should take this overseas first. Well, that was Lou was always involved. Like Lou was involved in that at that time. As soon as Justin and JC came down, Lou was like, "All right, I can be involved." Because even before, like I said, when I was calling Justin's mom, Lou said, "Don't say I'm involved." And I'm like, "Why? Man, why is that?" because he didn't want to upset Backstreet Boys and, and his whole company who Backstreet was their baby. He didn't want to go to them and go, well, I got another one. So they didn't know at, not while, at first. while you guys were forming nope. and you started to actually be, no, nope. they didn't know. I, I think the guys kind of knew because, you know, I, I'd be at Brian's, I, I'd be at Lou's house and, you know, talking business. So I may be leaving Brian or, or somebody be coming in and they're always like, what is he doing? Like, why is he here? What are they, you know, what's the, what's the, the deal on them. And, and that's again, why I said it really sucks for them. Like they, they were treated unfairly in the whole situation because it's not our fault. Here we are. We just want, we just wanted to work. You know, we just wanted to be a band and they're the ones that were like getting like the rug pulled out from under him by him going, by the way, I got another one just in case. Did that ever happen to you guys? Oh, it, I mean, but, but the difference is we knew he was doing it. Mm. You know, it was like, we, we already assumed that's who Lou was. That's what he's going to do. I mean, it happened like 30 times for us, you know, and it was just like, we just, we just with each other, we just have to say, listen, we're just going to work. We have to work a thousand times harder. You know, you have to, we have to, we had to work a thousand times harder just to be equal, you know, and that was great because again, it goes back to that drive. We were talking about it. It gave us our drive. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, 
Stu's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The boar's nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the kids at St. Jude. St. Jude's been leading the way in the world's best survival rates for some of the most aggressive forms of childhood cancer. Your support means that families never get a bill from St. Jude for treatment or travel or housing or food so the families can focus on helping their child live. And that really hits home for me because I've been to St. Jude many times. I've hung out with the kids, played music for the kids. I was in the hospital a lot as a kid. Now, I didn't have cancer, but if it wasn't for people stepping up, I don't know that I would have been able to go and stay in the hospital and be taken care of. So that's why we do this, take care of others. You can help St. Jude stop childhood cancer by becoming a partner in hope. When you do this, you'll get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. So join all the doctors and researchers, you know, and me in this fight and just text the word Bobby to 785-833. It's only six numbers, but text the word Bobby to 785-833. At number six, it's my friend Lionel Richie, who I've gotten to know from American Idol. Lovely, lovely guy. Talking about his friend Kenny Rogers. Here's that. Hello. Hello. Lionel. Yeah. Hey, it's Bobby. And I want to talk to you about Kenny a little bit, because I got to know Kenny later, and Kenny and I became really friendly in the later part of his life. Well, and I know you and him were close for years. Well, you know, let me, let me, let me be very honest with you. I, I just lost one of my heroes. That is the best way I can describe Kenny. Um, because of the fact that, you know, I met him at a time in my life when I was trying to figure out life, you know, transitioning from the Commodores into my solo career. And, you know, God sent me an angel because this guy was probably one of the nicest guys I'd ever met in my life and full of knowledge, full of life knowledge. And he was able to, you know, he was in a group called the, the, the First Edition, and everything I was about to experience as a young kid, he had already been through it. And so it was just a beautiful relationship that blossomed into something called a friendship forever. We have lived a lot of life together. So when you write Lady, how long did you have that? Or were you, was that meant to get to him? Was that for you? Like, What was the story between you writing it and him recording it? Well, it's all about, I think it's about God's plan, because it was actually designed, the melody of it was uh, supposed to be for the Commodores. And at that particular time, I had written, you know, Three Times a Lady and all these other songs. And so the guy said, you know what, Lionel, do you have anything else besides uh, another love song? I said, well, I I wrote a religious song, um, Jesus is Love. He said, well, take that. We like that. That's a good that's a good transition from what we're doing. So now I went from having uh another ballad to now having this thing sitting around. Well I got a call from Kenny Rogers saying, Do you have a song for me? And I said, Kenny, I'm quite honest with you, I I have a song but I don't have time to do it 
because we're the Commodores are going on tour in about two weeks, and I'm not going to be able to do it, but I'll do it when I come back. I hung up with the phone. About three days later, the drummer for the Commodores fell off his motorcycle, and I had two months of free time because he was recovering. And I called Kenny back and said, are you interested in that song? He said, absolutely. <laughs> well, the funny part about this story is <clears throat> my mumbles. I don't write the words because if you know anything about writing a song with the Commodores, for God's sake, you don't finish the song because in two seconds, they will say, we don't like it. What else do you have? So I always would have basically the first verse of it all and nothing else. Well, the song was called Baby, just Baby. Ba 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 ba. Right? And I now go to meet Kenny, and he had never heard a song pitched like this before because I've never pitched a song to anyone. So I walk in his, in his backstage area of his uh, show, and he said, Okay, what's the song? And I said, Well, he was telling me about he had just got married, and he's never in his life ever, and he's never married. I mean, he married a lady, a real lady, like Lionel. I mean, what am I doing with a lady? Me of all people, you know. So he said, "Oh yeah, by the way, what's the name of the song?" I said, "Lady." <laughs> <laughs> I'm no fool. <laughs> nice. And then from there, of course, uh, I I said, "Lady, I'm your knight in shining armor, and I love you." Ba 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 ba. He said, "Well," I said, "Do you like it?" He said, "Well, where's the rest of the song?" I said, "Well, no, I'm, I'll finish it if you like it." <laughs> so. He trusted me. I, of course, he tells that story. You'll hear this story. He'll repeat the story back. He said, I couldn't believe that's all he played for me. And, of course, we went in the studio, and a massive hit. But he always teases me because while we were recording that song, I wrote two songs for him. The first song was called Going Back to Alabama, and the second song was Lady. Well, I thought just to warm up with Kenny... I will do, I'll do going back to Alabama first just to get used to recording with him, and then we'll knock out Lady. Well, we get halfway through going back to Alabama. He said, Lionel, I don't really want to sing this song. Let's just sing Lady. Well, I didn't want to tell him I'd only written the first verse. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he sang the first verse, and then I said, you know, I, I'll be right back. I have to go to the bathroom. And so I'm now in the bathroom, writing the second verse to Lady. And, of course, the joke with Kenny was, if you want to get a great hit record from Lionel Richie, make sure he writes the second verse in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, that was the story. But, I mean, it's, it's all true, as crazy as it sounds, but it was just a massive, massive record for both of us. You know, until I was kind of looking back at some old, old Kenny stuff, um, you know, he sang on We Are the World, which you wrote. Uh, yeah, you know, that was, um, you know what that, I, I was very fortunate to, at, at the particular time, when I went into my solo career, I also, I had Kenny there as my advisor, and the joke was, I was hanging out with Kenny's manager, Ken Cragen. And so when I was looking for a manager, Ken said, well, Kenny said, well, I got Ken right here, what do you think about that? And I just segued right to, we had the same manager. So, of course, when I did We Are the World, naturally, with Michael, naturally, Kenny's going to be a part of that no matter what, because I just had to have him in there. And by that time, we were just 
we were just two peas in a pot by that time. And, of course, We Are the World was just one of those, um, you know, I, I think every once in a while God kind of possesses you and says, this is what you're really here to do, and the world needs to hear this song, and you need to deliver this message. And, of course, you know, even to this day, someone asked me the other day, am I going to write another We Are the World? And I said, no, I'm just going to play We Are the World again. Because every time I try to write a new We Are the World, I keep writing the same lyrics that I wrote for We Are the World. The message is the same right now. We are challenged, but we are our brother's keeper right now. And we have to make sure that we are taking care of each other, because that's what God planned. And not to be, you know, a, a tribe and a tribe and a tribe, but we keep being forced to do something together. And right now, this is that time in life to hear those words again. And I must admit that that song resonates today like it did, you know, what, 30 some odd years ago, 35 years ago. Well, I know that uh, you and Kenny were, were dear friends and I appreciate you sharing the stories about them and I, I appreciate you being so friendly and so kind to me. Like, I love you too. You, you, you just have been, Lionel, you just have been the best to me. You haven't, you didn't need to be, but you just have been the best to me. Well, you know what? I, um, I, I have to tell you something. I've been trained by some very famous people. And when I say that, you know, when I met Kenny Rogers, you couldn't get any bigger than Kenny Rogers. You know, that was the gambler I walked in on. And I must tell you, in less than 15 seconds, he made me feel like we grew up together back in Houston, Texas. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. And I learned a big trick, and that is, if you're famous, if you're really famous, you don't have to scare anybody to death. You just have to be as nice as you possibly can, because that's, they're already uncomfortable when they first meet you. And I must admit, you were so quiet when I first met you, I figured, I got to cheer you up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't make that much noise at all, but, you know, I kind of thought maybe maybe he doesn't want to talk to me. But but you are the sweetest guy, and I'm just telling you, now that we're with the show together, I mean, this is just a too much fun, and we were meant to be together, but... Um, don't worry. I, I think we've got a lot more life to go, Bobby. I think so, too. And, and you know, I love you. You're, you're so good on American Idol. And Oh, man. Back at you. Back you, at you. You still like doing the show? You still love doing the show? Can I tell you something? I am having, truthfully, the best time ever in my life. I, I, when I first started, I kept thinking, okay, now what am I doing? Because I've got Luke at the other end of the table, and I'm not quite sure what Luke's going to say. And And Luke scares me, but he's so funny, and we've become the best of friends. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I feel like Luke and, and Lionel are like Kenny and, and, and Lionel, you know, just, it's so crazy. And then of course, Katie, when Katie scares the two of us, you know, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I, I must say? I think about your job. You have the tough job because after we deal with them in front of us, we hand them back to you and they're a nervous wreck. They're nervous Before going they in, did. nervous oh coming out. Oh my God! I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I could do your job. Your job is, you have to put them together to face us, and then pull them back together. <laughs> <laughs> but we, I, I must tell you, I'm enjoying the show. It is a delight, and the most part, I think that the world needs a little compassion when they see us 
on that show. Those kids are very brave, and uh, and I, I just love kind of being the mentor for them. Listen, I love you. I'll see you soon. Be safe, my friend. All right, my friend. And tell everyone, all the listeners out there, hang in there. This is going to be a rough ride, but but God will get us through this. All right, Lionel. See you later, friend. All right, my brother. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. At number five, here he is, Gary LaVox, the lead singer of Rascal Flats, the first one back in my house after coronavirus. Are you guys not going to say goodbye on the tour? You know, I, not for now. I mean, I don't know what's happening. It's just, you know, every state's different now that... States that were in phase three are going back to phase two. And, you know, it's just crazy. I mean, who who knows? I mean, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I know Jay's doing his own thing. Jodon's writing a bunch. And, um, you know, and I'll just tell you that, you know, and everybody that I'm, so I'm doing a, a solo record. And I'm working on a solo record right now. Is that breaking news? That's breaking news. I knew it already, but I keep secret. I, I keep such I good secrets. You're yeah. so loyal. Yeah, I'm so loyal. So wait, what is, uh, then I'm going to ask you about that. So you're doing a solo record. What in what what does it feel like? What's the so I'm doing a first I'm gonna do a solo I'm doing a solo Christian record. It's been a dream record of mine forever, and I'm halfway done with that now. And it's I'm so excited about it. It's just gonna be great. And I think I'm going to do a uh, solo country record right after that. Wow. Yeah. Now, what kind of uh, expectation do you put on yourself in the solo country world where you've had you're as successful as you could have possibly been? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't be bigger than the flats. Yeah. So now it's you. Yep. How do you, what, like, what is the goal with you? Same? Yeah, I mean, the same. I'll just see where God takes it. But there's just, there's, you know, it's, it's you know, the, sometimes it's difficult for the three of us to agree on songs to cut and things that I really believe in. Most of the time it would work out. But there's, you know, there's just, a, I think, you know, I mean, I I feel the responsibility and the, and the calling to continue to keep singing if flats does or not so but there's songs that that i really believe in that i love and they're you know i mean i don't know if they'll be different from flats because i was the lead singer of flats so i mean they'll all kind of sound like that but and maybe not all the harmony stuff on there but there's songs that i really truly believe in that i love that i think are giants and i think that the world needs to hear them i mean i think they're you know i think they're really really good and i've already got some recorded for that so uh, I'm just excited. I'm excited about doing my own thing and, you know, and excited to see what happens, you know, if the flats get together at some point when everything clears off. I mean, I don't know. We'll see. But I'm going to continue to work, and I feel like that's that's been my calling and what I need to continue to do. And you know those guys as well as anyone. If, let's say, a vaccine happens with corona in March of next year, you guys decide to go out and play 10 shows. I'm just, this is just a hypothetical Will they be cool with you singing your solo songs up there? If it's out, yeah, 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 yeah they would. Yeah, I mean, we all. I mean, we get along great. We just don't know what's happening, and you know, everybody kind of, you know, a, you know, a couple of the guys wanted to do their own thing early on, and it just this Corona thing. It's it's just weird. It kind of gave us a year off before we were going to take a year off. You know. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just uh, just the way it worked out. Before I moved, I guess it's about three moves ago, but I was living in a condo and you looked out the window right on the printer's alley. Yeah. So when you first moved to town, did you guys play any of those printer's alley spots? Yep, right there, Fiddle and Steel. We played there, but we played all of them. But our main gig was like Mondays and Tuesdays, Fiddle and Steel. And then we would play Barbara's. 
And we'd play Lonnie's Western Room. We'd play all those down there. What does that mean, you would play them? Like, talk about a, what's a Monday night? So Monday night, well, when I first moved to town, it was Jay set up by the cigarette machine with a little keyboard. And we had some tracks like, well, they call me the fireman, that's my name. And we'd sit there, and sometimes the security guard was the only person that would be in there. But we would play there from 9 to 3 on Mondays and Tuesdays. Then we started building a following. Then we met, and Jodon came in, and then, um, but we'd play from 9 to 3, take breaks, and then we'd take a break, and then we'd go to Barber's across the street and play over there and sit in a karaoke. I mean, we just stayed in the alley. We were going to be somewhere every night playing music. What does that mean to develop a following when you're playing small bars with, without social media? Like, what does that mean? It's just the same people coming to see you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just same people would come in. They knew when we were playing. And what was great back then, too, was like, Mark Chestnut, Toby Keith, and all that. So when everybody was off the road, everybody would go to Printer's Alley and hang. So you might be playing with Mark Chestnut's guitar player, um, you know, Toby Keith's drummer, um, you know, Martina McBride's, you know, acoustic player. It was just, a, I mean, it's what country music was, you know. Then they knocked it all down and built, you know. The condo I used to live in. The condo in. that you used to live in. <laughs> Uh, what was the, the final straw that made you come to Nashville? I, you know what? I was sitting in my mom's kitchen and... How old? I was 20... I was 27. And I was sitting in my mom's kitchen and I was singing along with the radio and I was like... And it just hit me. And I, at that moment, I just kind of looked up and I said, God, I feel like you've given me some type of gift to sing and I'm so sorry that I haven't used it. It was just the weirdest thing and I was like I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it so I took out because I worked for the the board of um, developmentally disabled for 10 years it's right out of high school so I had to leave that job you know state job sold everything and uh, moved to town and and it, but that's what it was in my kitchen I'd really I sold everything threw everything in my truck moved moved to Nashville were you dominating karaoke competitions back home yeah yeah I was crushing them yeah because that was an extra hundred bucks you know if you won, I was like, you know, if I'd hit three on Friday, it'd be an extra $300, you know. Then Saturday, and then there was one place on Sunday. But then they caught on. So if you won too much, then you couldn't win anymore, you know. So then you, you had to start venturing out you going put on the east side. Fake mustache. Oh, yeah. yeah. Out-of-town karaoke <laughs> clubs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you and Jay, obviously, are related. The, with, with Joe Don, did Jay find Joe Don? Is, who's, who's, yeah. What was that? So Jay was the band leader for Shelly Wright, and then he hired uh, Joe Don to play guitar for Shelly. And so they, he had, Jay had been telling me about Joe Don, how you know, high tenor, how great he sings and plays. So he came down at the Phil and Steel Guitar Bar one night, and it, our guitar player didn't show up. So he, he invited Joe Don in, and we did uh, Church on the Cumberland Road. It was the first song we ever did. And, the rest was history. We were like, wow, I don't know what that was, but that was, I mean, it was just, it was incredible. So we asked him, and that was that. How quickly until you had a name, though? It took a while, because we were, because I think Jay and I were going by Deuces Wild, and then there was three of us in there. So Deuces Wild didn't make any sense. And then, you know, it was hard to come up with a name. And, uh, but we we sat there, and we we were thinking, so we were Oklahoma, because Joe Don's from Oklahoma. It was just terrible. And then, so... <laughs> It was awful. 
And so uh, this piano player named Jelly Roll was in town, or was playing with us, and he was like, man, back in the 60s, I used to have a band called Rascal Flats. And uh, we were like, well, what's it mean, Jelly? He was like, hell, I don't know. No idea. <laughs> and we were like, all right. So we literally wrote on a napkin, uh, and we paid him 500 bucks for the name, so if it did work, we wouldn't get sued later. So that's the story. And how quickly that you guys were like, okay, we're going to do this until you actually started to make any sort of money from an entity bigger than just a bar, meaning a, a record label? Uh, how it was, Did that happen pretty quick when people heard you? Yeah, you know, um, there was, a, see, so I moved to town February 98, and we got signed in 99. And then, um, but we were humping. I mean, we were killing it every night. We were playing somewhere every night. And then, um, yeah, so, but we were working for tips only. And then we got paid 40 bucks a night. And then, uh, so the, the first real money was, was when we signed our deal with Lyric Street Records. Yep. Did you guys ever uh, baby act for anybody as that third act where they really were like, hey, we'll look out for you? You know what? All of them did, really. And that was like, our first tour ever was Jody Messina, and Jody kind of did that for us. And then it was Toby Keith. Toby really took us under his wing. And then Brooks and Dunn. I mean, really, you go out there and you try to steal everything that that they've got. Their fans. You learn so much. And then Brooks and Dunn. And then I mean, they all kind of took us under their wing and really showed us the ropes and you know how to put a tour together and how to treat fans and you know because we were on that. Uh, the Brooks and Dunn thing where they had jugglers and stuff all day long, you know? So, yeah, we, I mean, we learned from all of them. All of them kind of, kind of took them under, took us under their wing and really showed us the ropes. And they were, I forget who it was that told us, they were like, you see all those fans out there? You need to go steal every single one of them. We were like, oh, that's right, cool. Well, we'll try. That's cool. And that's what we told everybody that's open for us since then. The, uh, how they remember you, the EP when it comes out. What? Why do you name song? Different people give me different ones. But why do you name the whole project after a song? You know, I don't know. I, I guess just because it's easy. It's the first thing. And it's hard to encompass, like, because all of it has a different feel and the whole body of work feels different, you know? Unless, you know, something like the Craftsmanship record. <laughs> that would have been the other Time name. spent record. You, you know, guys, you, had seven, you have seven songs on this thing. Did all, is it a rule that three of, three of you have to agree on the song or two or three? What's the, what's the dynamic there? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. And then, but I'll get in there sometimes and just go, man, I just, I, I hate this song, I'm not doing it. You ever done that to a song and it ended up being a massive hit where it's like, I don't know if this is the one? Um, I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're, Jay's probably been the worst. <laughs> at that, Jay has because he's yeah, the, like songs like no, I'm not doing that, you know, like like Sarah Beth, you know, about skin. I don't want to sing about cancer. I don't want to do, you know, that's it's a tough subject. I don't want to sing about. So it's a hit, and it's happened a couple other times. We were like, hey Jay, whatever other songs that you hate, man, that'd be great. Let us They're know what you hate ones. the most. Yeah. yeah, right. So you and Jamie Foxx have been friends for a while, huh? Mm-hmm. Yep, long time. You guys used to sit around Jamie's house singing. We did all the time. Yep. Uh, here is. Um, she Goes All the Way, which came out in 2007. Yeah. No questions, no talking at all. Only the sound of our hearts as they Isn't he, one, like, the best? I'm, I'm not talking about as a person. I don't know him as a person. But when you look at overall talent and what he's able to do, act, Oscar, sing, hit record, comedy, 
freaking in living color. I see him do impressions. Like, I don't know that I can name a more talented person, period. Nope. Overall than Jamie Foxx. Y'all just see him shoot baskets. Y'all just see him play basketball. How'd yeah. you guys become friends? He, I, I had got a deal offered to me uh, by Capitol Records in early on, like a pop deal. And so I went to L.A. My old manager at that time used to uh, work for Jamie. And um, so ended up going there, staying there. And uh, after I turned that deal down, I ended up just staying and living with Jamie for a few months, just staying with him. And, man, we were just – and he had well, You just, guys lived together. Mm-hmm. Just started the W. He started just started the Jamie Foxx show on the WB, and so he was just getting going. I mean, his comedy stuff was happening, but he's truly one of the. He he might be the most talented person I've ever seen. He's great at absolutely everything. I mean, not just great, but I mean, sets the bar for. I mean, comedy talent. I mean, his the way he plays piano and. I mean, he's just, and, and he loves music. He loves country music. He loves all genres of music. And he can act. I mean, it's just, it's not fair. It's not fair at all. It sounds like he's a good dude, too. He's a great dude. Which sucks. You kind of want to hate someone. I know it, yeah. He's from Texas. That's why I never liked you. Yeah. Because it's just you have it all. You, just, you have it all, yeah. And I'm in coveting. <laughs> yeah, I'm envious and I'm coveting. Yeah. Life as a Highway was never a single, right? Right. Yeah. It just became a smash, kind of because people liked it, which is rare. Yep. Yeah, the Cars movie. Yeah, you know, and then radio picked it up because it was just doing so good, and just kind of they played it, but it was never a single. And really, one of the songs that I would assume you guys are associated most with, depending on with the age group. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's funny because I was just um, <coughs> just doing a singing with a buddy of mine, Jonathan McReynolds, in the Christian world, the gospel world. Who's amazing? He's the same way. So talented, so gifted, not fair. Coveting thy neighbor, that's what I'm doing with him too because it's just ridiculous. But anyway, his, his assistant, who knows nothing about country music, never even heard of Rascal Flatts, but knew Life's a Highway. Really? Yeah. yeah. Life's a Highway, the original version, don't tell me. Is it like Eddie Cochran? No. Who sings Life's a Highway, the real version? Tom Cochran. Tom Cochran. Yep. I get Eddie Money and Tom Cochran mixed up because to me they're the same person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the most profitable song you guys have put out? For me, the ones I wrote, Fast Cars Freedom and I Melt and Bob That Head and Summer Nights and all that. But, you know, I mean, all in all, bro, it's got to be Broken Road or what hurts the most. If someone says, hey, Gary, we're gonna, I want you to come. My, my cousin's having a little wedding here and you, he's, you're real important to him. And he says, you sing two songs, any two songs at the wedding. What do you pick? Broken Road, My Wish. I mean, those are always the ones that they ask. It is? Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Somebody asked me to sing at a wedding. I tried on moving on once, but that didn't work. Yeah, probably not, not a good it move. It wasn't, yeah. Do you still get excited because, you know, this new project's coming out? You get excited it's going to come out, or you, is it just another day? Like, it's just part of the... Bro, I'm so fired up. I, I'm so excited. More excited than I've been in a long time. I'm so excited to have... You know, I love everything that we did with Flats and being a part of that and all of that, and who knows what will happen in the future, but I'm so excited about just having my own songs that I picked, that I hand, you know, handpicked and helped co-produce and using, you know, different, it's just fresh, it's new and it's exciting and, you know, it's just, uh, and singing about the Lord is going to be awesome. I mean, it's been a dream record since I was a kid, so, you know, and then the country stuff, 
you know, the, the country record that'll come after that is, you know, I mean, I've already got some cut for that, that it just, they're great, they're great songs. We live in a town with the greatest songwriters in the world, so we're right here, you know? So I'm just ready, waiting for you to agree to the duet with me. See, I wouldn't. You know, <laughs> I just wouldn't. Oh, great. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's not coming. Yeah, no, I just, uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to sour it. Thank you guys for listening to part one of the Top 8 Bobbycast interviews. If you enjoyed those, you can go back to the feed and hear the full one. That's what's great about it. Like, you heard a little snippet of each, but you can go hear the long one. Just scroll back, and you'll find it up there. And next week, we'll put out part two. I'll talk to you then. Thank you, guys. Goodbye. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision-making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. You can probably spell it. You probably know it. Tacovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.